welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I have a really awesome episode for you today. Connie Graff helps people clear their clutter, but not like most others. She believes clearing clutter is an act of self-love because the clutter we cling to that keeps us stuck in life is more than just stuff. It's an indication and symptom of what's happening with us emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Clearing our clutter is not just about purging and organizing. It's about exploring and releasing the limiting beliefs we tell ourselves and the stories and suppressed emotions that keep us stuck in the past. It's a transformational journey and brings us up to date with who we are and where we are heading in life and business, while being organized is simply a welcome side effect. And Obviously, Connie is somebody who identifies as an empath and can really talk about why clutter is so especially important for all of us as empaths. So Connie, welcome. I am so glad you're here. Well, thanks, Jennifer, for the nice introduction and for having me here. I'm very excited for our conversation. I am really, I am very excited for our conversation too, because You know, you're the first person I've brought on to talk about clutter. And I think that I know that this is something because one of the things about empaths is that empaths often have like that um, psychometry ability, the ability to touch an object and pick information up from it. And so clutter is not just something that visually is affecting them. But a lot of times I know that that clutter can be like added static added signal just coming into our lives. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. But before we go into what you do now, I would love to hear about your experience as a kid, your experience as a young, sensitive person. How did you like, what was it like being an empath as a child? How did you realize that you were maybe different than other people? How did you realize that you were really sensitive? Well, so Jennifer, I always thought something was wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) You and every other empath I've ever talked to. Yes. And my mother for sure always told me that there must be something wrong. Why are you so sensitive? And so I'm originally from Switzerland. And in Switzerland, we have a saying that when you're very sensitive or you're, you're like, um, withdraw right away or something. We always say like, you're like a mimosa and we're not talking about the drink. We're talking about the plant, the flowers, this yeah. plant this yeah. sensitive plant who withdraws and curls its leaf in right yes, away. Exactly. Yes, yes. So my mother, and she didn't mean it in a nice way. She constantly said, oh, you're such a mimosa, <laughs> such a mimosa. So it was, so I literally thought there was something wrong with me. And And of course, because I thought that I would withdraw even more and I would try to to be tough and I would build this shell around and try to pretend and show the tough Connie (laughs) to the outside, which, of course, didn't work really well. And and I think, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but like back then, nobody talked about highly sensitive people. Nobody did. Right. (laughs) all didn't exist. It was just like, why are you so sensitive? Don't be so stupid. Right. And so it wasn't really very nice. And I just learned to live with it and just expect or or accept that actually, that there is something different. Uh, Even later, like um, people, I realized people are not reacting the same way to life or to these environments. So I just stopped talking about it. And it was actually not that long ago, only about five, six years that I actually really understood, oh, now I understand I'm an HSP and I'm actually really even an an empath. And and so that's, so long story short, I'm not blaming my mother for saying these things to me. It was just 
literally, I just thought there was something wrong with me. There was well, and something wrong with me. <laughs> I will tell you that in the thousands of conversations I've had, I have met one person who was not told you're too sensitive, you're overreacting. There, there's, you know, you've got an overactive imagination. You're making stuff up. This isn't really happening. Stop mm-hmm. worrying about it. There must be something. You're, you know, you're weird. There's something wrong with you. You're the one who's having the problem here. Sadly, I've met one person mm-hmm. in the entire, yeah. in all of the conversations I've had who didn't have that message. And so welcome to the club. Like, <laughs> you know, it's unfortunately a pretty large club. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said, because I always love sort of concrete examples of things. You were commenting that there was a point where you realized that you were perceiving things or experiencing things differently than other people were. And then, and that you sort of chose to maybe like kind of stop talking about it. But I'm wondering, could you give an example of that moment of realization where you were like, oh, these people are experiencing it this way. I'm experiencing it this way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I just don't know whether I can pinpoint one exact moment or whether it was just like, kind of like several moments that added up, then all of a sudden clicked. It was just, so I grew up on the outskirts of a village right on on the edge of the forest. So I was always very connected with nature too. I was connected with animals. I one time had a dream um, meeting a, a fox who had rabies and then actually would meet that fox the next day. So there was, it was actually happening and people around me would just like dismiss me. And, and I just felt like, well, to me, so so the, that morning when I, for example, met that fox with rabies, I came outside of the house and I knew exactly and right away something is wrong. And I was only six or seven years old, but I knew something is wrong. No bird was singing. I was, I, I remember like yesterday, no bird was singing. I come out and I'm like, okay, something is wrong. Then I remembered my dream. And then I knew, okay, I'm going to meet this fox. The question is just, where is he <laughs> or she? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, I don't know if it was mm-hmm. a male or female. And just the whole experience around this, this was deeply um, affecting me. And people around me were just, don't do so stupid. It was just a fox. Nothing happened. It was a dream. Like, And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, yeah. And so then, and again, it's like, who knows? Maybe they were busy and, and they just... Back then, that was the 70s. Nobody probably thought of like, oh, you could actually have a dream that comes through or you could know certain things like other uh, occasions where I just knew things and I could never explain why I knew things. So, yeah, this is when I started to realize, okay, I have to be careful to whom I say what to, you know, Mm -hmm. and what stories I tell where Um, and that these people are obviously not having the same uh, dreams or the sa- same experiences, also how nature affects them or how the animal world affects them. So that's kind of like what I meant with, oh, okay, well, and then also the just me reacting also to certain news or to certain smells, to certain noise. And I just realized I can't say, oh, it's so noisy because everybody would say, well, yeah, it's, well, it's not that bad. And I'm like, <laughs> it is. Right, so, you right. know, and, and you just learn, I just learned to withdraw, like with information like this and not, mm-hmm. not say it. I, I had this shield up and I like today I talk way more open about it, but I think too, it's a different time. So it's more re- well received when you talk way about more it. received a yeah, lot, yeah. a lot less. Um, I think just a lot less of kind of that pushback. I mean, I just think about how many times I had similar experiences to you where either a prophetic dream or just knowing something and 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 just really deeply instinctively having a sense of something and having somebody say, "Well, that's that's how you think or that's what you think." <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, or sort of like, "Well, that might be true." And it's sort of I, I you know, for them it might just be sort of a, "Okay, you know, that's, that's what you, you know, that's, that's your perception about it. But I find for those of us who are highly sensitive, when it is a lived experience and somebody just is kind of like, well, you know, okay, that's, that's what you think. It's kind of gaslighty in the same way that when somebody says, 
when, when, you know, somebody does something that hurts your feelings and they go, I'm sorry, you feel that way. Like, it's just like, no, you know, acknowledge like, like, even if you don't necessarily agree, like, can you just validate that this was my experience? But I, I hear you that, you know, there, especially when back in the seventies, it was such a time where it was kind of like, there was a very small fringe of the population that was starting to look at ESP and sense and and like the paranormal and acknowledge that it had some legitimacy but to the rest of the world it was science fiction or fantasy yeah so yeah. i i really feel you there about just and, and i yeah. think the other thing was too it's like i was a child i i couldn't even really understand myself why right or, or you know and then and then when you're just basically told well why would you think this or 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 just like in a in a way that dismisses you or that makes you not necessarily feel wrong because I feel it. They may not have wanted me to feel wrong, but they just, yeah, it was just, then you don't know what to do as a child. I think as an, as an adult, you have maybe other mechanisms, how you can uh, justify that for yourself or how you can, how you can, um, I don't process it. Let's say that. Um, but as a child, you're just told you're, you're too sensitive and, and, oh no, you're imagining this or you're, they never said I'm cuckoo, but it's just like, oh, you again, kind of like, you know, it's like this, this sentence, oh, you again. Right, right, um, right. And then, yeah, yeah. So that, that, and then the other thing you just said about paranormal, that was something else. Like from, from the moment I could read, I would read, but I would never really read what other kids are reading. Like I went to the library and I got all the books about after death back in the seventies. I got, yes. I got the books about the paranormal, about the veil and all that. And I could not tell anybody that I got these books, but of course, back then in the library, there was still the lady who had to put a stamp in the book. And, and they looked at me sometimes like, what are you doing with these books, child? You know, it was like, it was funny. I remember being um, like the celebration of when I was able to get an adult library card, like go into the adult section instead of the stacks in the children's library. And just like that, there was one bookshelf that had the, and maybe with two, two shelves in the stacks that had the paranormal books. And I, like you, I was just like all over those books because I wanted that information. Connie, so let's talk about, so how did you go from this very sensitive, very mindful, very awake and aware child to clutter? Like I'm imagining, I know at least in my experience, most of the time, the reason we choose something is because of the way it affected us personally. So I guess my first question to you is, was clutter a challenge for you? And is that how you ended up here? No, actually not really. Um, so I grew up, well, I grew up in a house. My mother was all about keeping up appearance. So you wouldn't see any clutter at all unless you would open some cupboards, <laughs> some closets, then you might see it. And it was actually more the opposite that she would constantly nag at us children that we had to keep everything pristine. Um, I don't even think it comes from there. It's more like because I couldn't really express like all the other things to other people. I just was more, um, even more aware how the environment affects us, maybe mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I was um, very young, maybe 10 or 11, when I started to realize that little room, I was, uh, I had my own room. I was lucky enough to have my own room, but it was very, very small. I always joke and say like a broom closet. It was very small. And literally there was a bed and a desk and a closet. And then that room was full. And I just no started to notice how I feel different when I rearrange it. And it was not even clutter. It was just how when I rearrange certain things or when I display certain things and put other things away and vice versa, I just started to notice how this has an effect on me. Yes. On, on my, my well-being even, or, well, I wouldn't have named it that last when I was a child, but just how I feel, how I, how I like my room. That would probably a 10 year old would say how I like my room, what 
posters or pictures I had up. And that's kind of, and back then, nobody talked about clutter either. You may remember that, Jennifer, 70s, nobody talked about clutter. Nobody talked didn't about clutter. have as much stuff as we have right now. I mean, that is, is so true. That is, is so story. true. But it's not like clutter is, uh, we can get into that later, clutter is so much more than just what we're thinking or what most people think of when they think of clutter, yes, all that yes, stuff yes. they trip over. But it's not just that, it's it's so, so much more. And so I just started to notice how the environment, whether it's my room, whether it's our house, whether it's when I go to somebody else's place, how the environment actually has an effect on me. And then I just started to pay more attention and then I got really good at noticing whether I feel comfortable and when I feel comfortable, you know, besides nature, like nature is always like nature is never cluttered anyway. So you always feel comfortable. So yeah, that's kind of how it started. And again, I would like, I would not have called it clutter. I, I was actually asked them by other, by my friends to help them maybe organize their room or maybe look at their room because they, I, I must have talked about it a little bit, how I rearranged my room again, because it makes me feel better or whatever. So that's kind of how it started. <laughs> wow. So you were 10 when you started, when you started 10, helping 11. people, 11. Yeah. So you were, wow. So you really found your vocation and your calling really early in life. Yeah. But of course, back then, there was no, like, no, like I said, nobody talked about clutter. Nobody, nobody would hire somebody that helped them with it. So when then it was about picking what to do with my professional life, well, actually not even that I had a choice. It was basically my parents kind of told me what I had to do, what they were willing to, to finance. Mm -hmm, and then they mm -hmm. always said like, when, once you're 20 and you're making your own money, you can do whatever you want with your life. But right now you're doing this. So I ended up, um, just in the office and, and, and then I just did this as, um, <laughs> like as, as a hidden, hidden, how, how would you want to call this a, a hidden, um, magic trick. So when I then would work in the office, I just would make sure that my desk, my environment would work for me, you know, and then because of it, I would work better or I would be more productive or less stressed. And then later on, like in my twenties, people would notice again and would say like, why, why don't you have a mess on your desk? Like we all do, or why don't you have all these piles on your desk? Like we all do. And and I just had this hidden thing. I wouldn't talk with people about it. I would just make sure that I feel comfortable and that it actually, I always say like, instead of your workspace sabotaging you, it was supporting me. So I was doing these things. So for the longest time, I was not even working in this field or helping people with this. Um, only later, uh, I, I started uh, helping or adding this and say, okay, yeah, well, I can help you because see, and, and it's so funny sometimes to me how people don't realize how they make their environment like like an obstacle course for themselves and how yes, it would yes. be so much easier if you would, would um, pay a little bit of attention and construct it or design it in a way that is uh, supporting rather than sabotaging. Well, and I saw a video. I just happened to, you know, YouTube suggested a video to me yesterday as I was in the kitchen cooking some dinner. And it was a video about basically for people who are um, neurodiverse and, and with ADHD, how to set up your home and set up your space so that it's actually friendly for brains that are not neurotypical. And what was really validating to me watching it was that I realized I do a lot of the things that they were talking about. But she was talking about even just the things of like, say, you have your coffee making station. You don't just have the coffee maker there. You have the coffee making making station close to the water source. You have the you have a drawer underneath the coffee maker where you've got your filters, where you've got your tablespoon, where you've got your coffee where you've got your, your sweetener, where you've got, if you use a powdered creamer, where you've got your creamer. And instead of it being this thing where it's like you start doing the thing and then you're like the water is halfway across the room and you have to go over and get it, or there's something in the refrigerator that you need to go get. And by the time you get to the refrigerator, you completely forget what it was that you were doing. It's this idea of 
you're thinking about the entire action and the entire task and how to make the space support the whole task as opposed to fragmenting it and breaking it apart. And that to me was like, it it is kind of like a duh moment in the sense that like, well, of (laughs) course, but on the other hand, it's like, we don't necessarily ever get taught to think this way. And so it sounds like you instinctively understand how incredibly important it is to set our spaces up for success as opposed to setting them up for failure. Yeah. And, and yeah, this seems to be kind of a gift to me, but then on the other hand, I feel like probably most people would come to the same conclusion or to similar conclusion if they would actually pay attention to, but we don't, we don't, a, we're never taught and B, um, you, maybe we don't slow down long enough to actually figure out, does this even work for me? Or we just take it. I don't know. So I don't want to bash anything or anybody, but I, sometimes I'm feeling like we're being brought up to just like you, we do things this way. And, and, and unless you're doing it this way, you're getting an F or you're getting whatever, you know? And so we're just doing it the way we're told to do it without ever questioning whether this is actually working for us or not. And, and in the school system, it is often that way. We're just being squeezed into a mold and we're just trying our best to fit in this mold, which we usually don't. And then we never never we have no energy left maybe or we don't even have the free brain space left to question whether this actually works for us or not once we are in a position that we could make up our own mind then we're just continuing on with whatever they told us and we don't even question it so i think yes i as an early age i noticed how I can make life easier for me. Maybe it was also because being highly sensitive and and not understood, everything else was so difficult already that I felt like where I can make, and that's what I often say to my clients today too, is like we have so much not under control, but at least let's make the things that we do have under control easier for us, you know? And I think that's maybe what I instinctively did. Also because I felt how it makes me feel so much better. Yes, Yes. Yes. You know, you're, I'm realizing as you were speaking, I'm actually just thinking about my mom. Um, when I was a little girl and my mother was a stay at home mom with, with three young children, one of the things that she would do about every few, like, it was almost like every couple months, she would rearrange the furniture in the entire house. Like she would move things around. And in hindsight, it really feels like this was all about what she did have control over and also mm-hmm. how the space really, how she felt different in the space mm-hmm. when things got moved around. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just really thinking about like, I grew, so I grew up watching somebody who, when she needed a mindset shift, she would move the furniture. Mm-hmm. So, so it's almost therapeutical in a way too. And I often say, when you're clearing clutter, it actually can help you. So like if you're in turmoil about something, you could go and clutter clear something that is completely unrelated to that, but it helps. It's almost like as within, so without, as without, so within, no? Like the hermetic um, Yes, yes, law. yes. So that when you're starting to sort something or go through certain things on the outside and it can be completely unrelated, that it helps you sort something on the inside. And that might have been what helped your mom too. The other thing I think is good if you do rearrange things, we are creatures of habit, no? And so the more we're doing everything the same way, day in, day out, it has its advantages. But if we're mixing up things once in a while, we all of a sudden have epiphanies that we may not have seen before. Or again, we may not even question something because we're just doing it every day. We're getting up with the left leg or the right leg, and then we're doing this first, second, third, you know. And if you're rearranging furniture or if you're rearranging something in your life, you have to, just for a split second, think a little bit more than just act automatic, and um, which can um, get you down a different path. So Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm actually, one of the things that as we're talking, I'm thinking about is how some spaces are really conducive to fluidity and flexibility, where it's like you can reconfigure the space in a number of different ways. 
But then there are those other spaces where it's like, because of the how the space is configured, it's like the couch goes here, the thing goes here. There isn't a lot of room for um, adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what would you say, or, you know, like in, in those places where there isn't a lot of opportunity to rearrange or opportunity to like shift it or adjust it, is that just sort of like, I don't know, I'm just even wondering, is that just my rigid mindset that's just sort of thinking, well, you're gonna, this is where the couch can go. Mm-hmm. Or how, if it really is like, there's just one wall that the couch can fit on, mm-hmm. how do you, like, like what might be ways to open things up? Well, that was for me when when I when this all started. No, my little broom closet. There was literally right. like the bed could go. The I could put the bed in two different positions, um, but one position made more sense than the other. But there was not even a third position. So and then and then also if I had the bed in let's say position two, then I had really no room for the closet. So then, right. <laughs> so. A lot of spaces are that way that you may not uh, be able to rearrange the big pieces in, in like in a drastic way. Although we could become very uh, bold and put it somehow somewhere where most people would come into the room and say, Oh, what you have your sofa wrong or something. Right, right, know. right. But you could just do it. Nobody says you would have to keep it that way, but you could just do it to see how that feels. Maybe <laughs> it makes yeah. you feel rebellious. You never know. But of course, like these big pieces, they might not be always easy to move around, but you can do a lot with decluttering or with reorganizing or with what are you displaying. Paying attention to, like a lot of people have their pictures up for years and years. They have their decoration up for years and years. They don't even know anymore. If I would ask you what is in the living room when you come in to the left, they may not even know because they don't look over there anymore. Or they, it's so And so just by actually changing the things you can change, it can mm-hmm. have, even subconsciously, it can have a positive effect, hopefully, but maybe yeah. it also has not such a good effect. And then just pay attention to it. And, you know, like, okay, well, there's something not right. You know? Well, like, for example, as you were speaking about spaces where, um, you know, your bedroom and our bedroom, we have our bedroom is set up so that there's on the south, there's one large wide wall with no windows on it, which is on the south side. And then there's sort of a door coming in uh, you know, at the very corner of that. But then on the east side of the room is the door into the bathrooms, the bat, you know, the master bathroom. On the north side is a big window that looks out to the, you know, that, that faces north. And on the west side, there's another big window. And so there's really only one spot for our bed to go that mm-hmm. makes sense because I I personally, I mean, I could put the bedroom, the the bed against with you know against one of the windows but it would have to in either other wall it would be situated where it would be blocking a window and like to me just the feng shui of having the head of a bed with a window behind it just feels really mm-hmm. weird yeah and you know so i know that i could rearrange it but it would definitely i don't think i would necessarily enjoy the energy of that no yeah. i'm i'm glad you mentioned feng shui so i'm not a feng shui specialist or anything but i read enough books to and I, I also pay enough attention to how I feel to know what what works and what not. And so, yes, while I agree with you, I wouldn't want to put the bed in front of the window either. But if that would have been the own, or if that would be the only position that I actually feel safe when I'm mm-hmm. laying or sitting in bed, then I probably would do it. So right. I kind of I always check in with me um, because that part of putting the bed in front of the window that could be something um that we have been taught you know that comes from the outside but how you feel when you have the bed in a certain spot in the room that comes from the inside exactly and same is with the sofa so when when you are in the living room wherever you have the sofa you want to make sure you feel protected. And I mean, Feng Shui talks about how you need something solid behind you. Now, a lot of people I see, they have the the back of the sofa towards the window and sit looking into the room, absolutely unprotected. 
I don't know. They must not pay attention how they feel. Or the other thing that I notice is they themselves often don't sit on that sofa. They sit in a chair that is somewhere in the corner and the guests only sit on the sofa. So this is just like paying attention to you. So when when we're talking about with moving around furniture, paying attention how you feel in it, especially beds, sofas, chairs, you know. Yes, um, yes. And yeah, the places where we land and whether we feel safe and protected or whether yeah. we feel vulnerable. Yeah, our our we have our house is an interesting house in that it's a salt box design and the main living area is all open concept. And so there's our couches by their very nature to you know are uh, are not against walls except for one that is against windows and it just is the way it is mm-hmm. but it's fascinating too looking at some of the modern house design in the fact that it's almost like some of the designs of of homes in the last i don't know like probably 50 years especially they're not designed to support our energy no 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 it's 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 more like it's just what is in fashion or whatever, or what is modern, considered modern. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, there is also people that might feel comfortable there. Who knows? I'm, I'm not here to tell you how you're supposed to live or how you're supposed to sit. What I'm here is, and I remind people over and over, just feel how you're feeling. Try to blend out all the, oh, we have to have this and, oh, we should have open concept now or, oh, we should have whatever. Should. I don't like the word should to begin with. And I don't like society or some architects or interior designers telling me how I'm supposed to feel and and live. Um, That's what I'm trying to say. Just start practicing being aware how you're feeling. And if if you feel off, you will notice eventually, even if you never have paid attention to it. And of course, maybe don't distract yourself with watching TV and whatever, but <laughs> just sit there for a second. Or, or when you have guests and you sit in your favorite spot, um, just why is this the spot that I feel drawn to sit down? Why is that? Why do I put my guests over there? Or just paying attention. I think that is my main message. Not necessarily you have to do it this way or that way. Yeah. Well, and I, you just reminded me um, when I was very young, I read a bunch of the Carlos Castaneda books and, you know, the teachings of Don Juan. And one of the things I think it was in the very first book, the teachings of Don Juan, he talks about Don Juan teaches Carlos that there are sort of spots of power within any space for each individual, and they're different. And one of the things that we want to be aware of is where is our spot of power? Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is like, notice where you're drawn to, notice the spaces that you want to go and sit on and be Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just thinking like, you're saying something that I've heard in a different form, but like pay attention to where are you called to be in the space? So I have a sort of, I want to take the conversation a little bit in a different direction for the moment. And we can keep, we sort of circle back around to some of these, you know, other pieces. But I I feel like something I've noticed that is a very big challenge for empaths who live with other people is how do you navigate when one person really benefits? And actually, I definitely have this experience. I thrive on not having a lot of clutter around. Clutter really impacts my brain. It really impacts my ability to think, to see, to function. And it's sort of like it's this nagging thing in the back of my head. My husband, on the other hand, is somebody who really thrives by having his things all around him. And so like his workspace is also his music studio. And it's like, he's got like, all of his, like he's got all of his drums and all of these things. And I've also seen this, not just with my own life, but with a number, like I've got a a dear friend who has a fairly large family. She thrives on, on, on just sort of order and not a lot of clutter. She has her husband and kids are like slobs, like they throw things on, like they just are not people who need a lot of decluttering. What advice do you have or what suggestions do you have? Like, how do you navigate a shared household 
with people with very different clutter styles. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I mean, yeah. it, it, <laughs> there is no no magic wand that I can wave here, but technically or. or it all it's all about compromise no so the common spaces have to be a compromise maybe we have to as empaths and the highly sensitive people have to tolerate a little bit of a more cluttered or chaotic space to to be um, generous enough to whoever lives with us as long as the other person understands. And, and I think in the common rooms, you just have to come to some kind of a compromise and understanding how, how you want to do those or have those taken care of so that everybody feels <laughs> not, yeah, so that not everybody or that everybody feels heard and mm -hmm. still comfortable, let's say like that, even though we may not feel 100% comfortable. And then... Um, and, and I have to talk and say that a lot to women. And I always say, like, it's your house, too. So then find or fight necess if necessary for a space in the house that is yours, a small room that you can go and um, <laughs> recover, if you want to call it that. No. So uh, oftentimes what I notice is that when I help people or families declutter, the children have their own room. The husband, for sure, has some kind of a man cave or a studio or a workshop or something. And the woman has nothing. She, the only thing she has is the common spaces, like which is common, which for, is for everybody. And even the master bedroom is shared, right? So right. she has nothing, nothing that is only her own. Yes. So then I always say, like, get, especially if you're highly sensitive, get a room of your own. You are just as much part of this family as everybody else. So get your own room and then do that in there exactly how you want it. And again, on the on the shared rooms, you just come to a compromise and we can't like it, the other thing is, too, is like we don't want to go overboard. I think a certain amount of imperfection in our life is always good. No, also for us empaths, even if it's too noisy at times, you know, instead of always at times. Okay, we deal with it. It might be good for us. No. Yes. Um, or then we could just withdraw into our own little space. But or put on headphones. Like there are there are hacks for dealing with a lot of the noise. You know, I I was thinking like if and it just occurs to me that even if we if somebody if there literally is not enough space like you know you have an apartment in Manhattan or something and there is literally not enough space for somebody to have to carve out an entire room you know you can claim a corner you can set yes. up an altar yeah. Yeah. claim a corner claim a chair in the living room with a little bit of a space around it that you say yes. okay here Nobody is allowed to put anything on this chair, on this side table. This is mine. This, you know, and it's also like um, just claiming our space. Sometimes something that I, I just notice for myself, especially being an HSP and, and, and heard so often that I'm wrong. I had to really work on claiming my space and actually yes. say, no, listen, this is mine. This is how I want it. Whether you understand it or not, if you have any respect for me or if you love me or whatever, then you will grant me this little space, you know? Yes, and, um, yes. Yeah, so you can you can claim as corner. You can you can in a, in a closet if you feel like if you have to share closets, you can claim certain shelves and just be the example how you want it. What I often say too is like the other it, the other people. It's not that they don't notice how the chaos affects them negatively. They just only notice it subconsciously and not really consciously because they're not paying attention. But if you're living your truth and you're carving out your little spaces and having it the way you want, it may jump over. Like I say, I have to be careful since we had the pandemic, but before the pandemic, pandemic, I will always say like clutter clearing is contagious. 
be careful, it jumps over. <laughs> so now we have to be a little bit more careful with that. But oh, it's a it, good it kind is. of contagious. There's the, yeah, this is, this, it's the, it's, it's, it's like, I'd much rather have a clutter clearing contagion than the yeah, alternative. Yeah. Yes. Very healthy, very healthy. A good, con- yeah, a healthy, <laughs> a healthy thing to catch. Very healthy yeah. condition. So anyways, but that's what happens a lot, even with children too, if you're actually, instead of nagging and, and, and whining or whatever, you just, claiming your space, treating that space the way you want it, all of a sudden, um, I, I heard mothers say that their child came and say, oh, you know, I, I clutter cleared like you did, mommy, or something like that, you know. And again, we're not striving for perfectionism. Maybe that sometimes we HSP tend to being too perfectionistic sometimes <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. And to, um, to just accept that 80% there is good enough kind of thing. So... 80% there is good enough. Well, and as you're speaking, I'm really thinking that respect is kind of at the core of this and mm-hmm. that respect starts with respecting ourselves, with believing mm-hmm. that we are worthy of claiming some space and of like creating that space and also to communicate, this is how I feel when you do this thing. Um, you know, but also, like you said, not necessarily whining or nagging or, or cajoling, but more being a power of example and sort of showing like, this is the way I like things to be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I definitely have seen with women and I love how you're talking about how, you know, children have their own space. The husband almost always has his own space, but the woman is in the common areas and that there's no space of her own. And that's something it's it just i mean this is a whole feminist thing when i was in seminary i took a course on women's women and pastoral care for women and spirituality and one of the things that the professor was talking about was everybody's space is res- like women a, a, a man can go into his office close the door and say i'm working for the next 3 hours and nobody will interrupt him but a woman can go into the same her office close the door and 5 minutes later a child is knocking on the door or a husband is knocking on the door or, you know, somebody is like, mom. And even going into the bathroom, like people will follow, follow the woman into the bathroom. And I think that a part of it strikes me that it's that as women, we need to value ourselves enough to say, I deserve this 30 seconds of time on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating how our culture allows women's space to be invaded in a way that it just male space does not get invaded in the same way. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. but it's also like it has these two sides. I think because we're allowing it or yeah. we're just whining about it or complain about it rather than actually putting up the boundaries and say, okay, listen. I really love you, but now I'm going to the toilet or now I have to work for two hours or whatever. And then going through the heart, like we're so, I think we're, as women, we're born to, to help, to nurture, whatever. What we're forgetting is that the first person we need to help and nurture is ourselves, no? And this is where the society hijacks us. But if we learn that we need to do that for ourselves too, and then instead of whine and nag and complain, just stand our ground and say, mm-hmm. okay, listen, I can go and take a shower or I can go to the bathroom without having three children <laughs> hanging off my skirt, you know, um, then I think we we get a big step forward. Like, And again, this is not, we can't change society. We are in the process of changing society. We I are a believer of that. Yeah. It has become better. We're still a long way to go, but we can't despair here and not taking care of what we have control over. And that's again, where I'm saying like, we can take control in our own house. And that doesn't mean we have to make the man wrong. It doesn't mean we have to abandon or neglect our children. But what we're right now are doing is actually abandoning us and aban- and, and ne- ne- neglecting us, right? And yes. so it's not about, so I, 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 I am a feminist, but sometimes it's hard when you say you're a feminist because it uh, implies right away that you're against everything. And I don't want to mm-hmm. be against anything. I want to be for myself. For, exactly. For myself and 
when I am for myself and I'm looking after myself, that's why I often say too, decluttering is self-love or clutter clearing is self-love. Yes. We're making space for us so that we feel better and have a supportive environment, not a sabotaging one. That benefits everybody. And, and this is what a lot of people miss, that when women start to look after themselves, everybody benefits. It's not the opposite. It's not like everybody is losing because women are starting to look after themselves. No, everybody's going to benefit. So I <laughs> come down from my soapbox. <laughs> I Well, and I really love the reframe you're offering, because I think that one of the challenges our culture has is that women have been relegated to the roles of domestic, domestic goddess. And the idea of she's, you know, sort of like you give your wife a vacuum cleaner for Christmas kind of thing. (laughs) And that so that there's I think that there's this sort of quality of of like the expectation that the woman is the one who's going to clean the house. The woman is in charge of keeping things organized and in this way. I love the fact that you're talking about clutter clearing and creating sacred space for ourselves as an act of self-love, because I think that that's such a different way of looking at it than just kind of the obligatory, well, she's female, therefore she's the one who's doing the dishes and she's the one who's vacuuming the floor and she's the one who's doing these, you know, like, like, well, that's just to be expected. Because I think that there is almost, I don't know if this is, you've ever experienced this, but I'm thinking in a weird way, it's almost like having clutter or not keeping a tidy, uh, tidy space can almost be like an act of rebellion if mm-hmm. if the perception of tidiness is that this is expected of you and and i'm just thinking like what if we what if it's really just is about self-care and and self-love and nurturing ourselves to be in a space that makes us feel good yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Exactly. And and you are on the right track because that is what often happens, um, that we are rebelling against something. And then, but the first one that then is hurting is again, is again us. No, it's, it's right. me that is hurting when, when I'm, when I'm rebelling too. Rather than rebelling, we could just stand for our boundaries and we st- can you know, you can only receive respect if you're also re- a ask for respect and b you give the respect too. And then the other thing is too is like we don't always have to do what society tells us to do. So maybe the rebellious thing is better <laughs> better situated there than where it hurts you. You're right. You know. Yeah. This is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's like it is just as much an act of rebellion to claim space for yourself and to mm-hmm. declutter mm-hmm. in in a society, you know, than it is than as it is to just sort of eschew housework altogether um, because of that. And I'm actually thinking, I'm imagining, I know for myself that when I was a little girl, there was a lot of like clean your room but I had no idea how to clean my room. And it felt like it was just this imposed sense of pressure. But like, I realized I had a, a, I had a godchild, a fairy goddaughter when I was in my, you know, as an adult. And when she was about eight or nine, her room was just a god awful mess. Like there was like food under the bed and clothing all over the floor, toys everywhere. It was a total mess. And what I discovered was if anybody just told her, go clean your room, she just spun her wheels. She just was like, she didn't know what to do. But if she and I went upstairs and spent time together, sorting through things and decluttering and talking about the stuff that was there Mm -hmm. and thinking about the, and, and doing the cleaning together, we could accomplish something. And I realized like she probably had no idea how to clean. And I don't know about you, but I think so often children are never taught how to actually declutter and put and tidy up and put things away. They're just told to do it. Yeah. 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 And that is often also because the parents don't really know how don't to really know properly how to do, do either. They never learned it either. So just to take that away from the parents. And then on th- third is like, how, how as a child do you clean up your room if you maybe don't have the, the, the bins or the places to put things? Or if you have 
more like how grown-ups think how to put things away like a child thinks differently you could make it fun by if you just have baskets or something and you just throw it into the basket you could even make a game who who can who can get the item into the basket and then the room looks already better we don't need to again strive for perfection especially not with a child but yeah you can make games around it and fun around it and then there is less rebellion and and you have an easier life too is <laughs> another another thing right um but but with the with the adults too it's like i hear a lot just that came to my mind when you were talking about your um um goddaughter i was thinking like yeah a lot of people say oh i should clean up my room or i should clean up my living room but they have no clue either where to start. So. Right, right, right. And so that That's actually leads me to the most common questions I'm getting. So how do I even start? How do we even those? start? You read my mind because I was literally <laughs> going to go there and say, you know, like, because we, we're we sort of coming in on that, the you know, sort of the the quarter to the top of the hour. And, um, and I was, and I was really thinking like, okay, so how do we start? What what steps, you know, for people who are listening, where do we begin? Mm. So in general, I think it, it's very individual. So, but I can give, a, can give a, a, an answer <laughs> I learned to give. So I have actually two answers. Awesome. Um, depending on how you tick, how I usually say. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some people, um, for them, it's advantageous when you go in a room and you actually do what I call a love tour. You go in this room and you figure out what is the most favorite spot in this room or in mm -hmm. your and, and I would suggest start with a room because most people want to declutter their whole house, but we can't start with the whole house. We have to start with a room. Usually we have to start with a corner of a room. So find the favorite spot in that room, sit down there, pay attention how it makes you feel, and then pay attention what what disturbs the good feelings that you have because it is your favorite corner, right? So what, what are the things that disturb you? And then start cleaning those away. The other approach is when you tick the other way around or when, when, when it's very, um, so let's say very chaotic in the room without judgment, mm -hmm. um, just start with the low-hanging fruit, whatever mm -hmm. you see that doesn't belong there, and just start there. And I always say, like, it's literally doesn't matter that much where or how you start. It's so much more um, important that you start, yes. you know? Um, with one little caveat, most people put too much on their plate. So they think, oh, I'm going to declutter the whole room today. And then after two hours of <laughs> ripping everything out, they're so exhausted because they they forgot. And, and that's a whole other two-hour conversation about how clearing clutter, not just us HSBs affects energetically, but just in general. Um, and if you're not paying attention, then you're actually sabotaging yourself more if you're just doing too much. So what I one of my slogans is a few minutes a day keeps the chaos away. And I mean this in several different versions. So one is start small, start with a few minutes. Like I said, go in this room, either find the spot that you love and put a timer on or something, five minutes, 10 minutes and start cleaning some decluttering and cleaning some around it or if if it's very chaotic like i said you just go in and again a timer five ten minutes and just start and then go out and pat yourself on the back that's another thing that most people don't do they just tell themselves constantly oh 10 minutes will not do anything oh i'm never gonna get it no we have to look at the light <laughs> no so pat yourself on the back i started i did something tomorrow i go and do again it's so much more um, you, you reach your goal so much easier if you do every day a little bit than if you're trying to do a, you're trying to find a weekend that you can declutter the whole house, which who has a weekend to declutter the house? Who has I a weekend to declutter the entire nobody, house? No. Well, and it's exa as you said, it's completely exhausting and it's such a setup for failure because, yes. and I know from my own experience, because I spent a lot of time as a younger person um, doing sort of almost like these binge purge cycles of like procrastination and avoidance. Then mm -hmm. I would get the energy and I would do this big, big, big thing. I would 
completely exhaust myself. Mm -hmm. And then I would crash. And I was in this cycle of like overdoing it, crashing, uh, not doing it for a while, getting the energy back up to do it again. And it was this constant, like, like, you know, foot on the accelerator, foot on the emergency brake, foot on the accelerator, foot on the okay. emergency brake. Exactly. And I love how you're talking about really establishing these, like these, these granular incremental habits that allow us to start doing something, but also to really celebrate the victory. Like mm-hmm. I've, my, I made the decision, my big habit change that I started working on, I think it was maybe either in November or December was to commit to flossing my teeth every single day. And I, I have very, very crowded teeth and it's a very sensory thing. So I've never liked to do it for long periods of time, but I was just like, you know what, we're just going to, it's not going to, you know, it's just like, let's just do this. Let's just do this. And you know, that incremental habit building makes other things come from that. And so I love how you're talking about the incremental habit building. There, there is actually scientific proof behind what you were just saying. And I don't know whether you ever listened to TED Talks, but there is a I TED do. Talk yeah. about flossing teeth and, and how you start with one. And so the, what I really want to say, too, because before we, we get off this topic is the advantage of doing it incremental, like I said, rather than what you said, and this is my words, yeah, you're overextending yourself, then you're crashing, and then totally. Worst case scenario, the house looks worse than before. Yes. Better case scenario is you actually did accomplish something, but the problem is the clutter will creep back in because you will be so exhausted, so disgusted by having to have to deal with clutter for hours and hours and hours that you're not going to do anything for weeks, if not months, and then you're back to square one. So the advantage of doing it incremental is also your, and, and you may not believe me in the beginning when if somebody is out there listening, they may not believe me. I, I get a lot of pushback on that. But when you're doing it incremental, you will, A, become more aware how you feel. B, you will actually change your habits and your routines in a way that are supportive to you because you you are in the process of doing it a little bit and a little bit, you're not rebelling against it because if you're doing it this one weekend and then not again, this is rebelling too. So you're not rebelling. You're just telling yourself and always say you can think of it parenting yourself. No, like when you were a child, because we were at flossing teeth, your parents probably told you, go brush your teeth, don't go floss your teeth. So now you can be your own parent. And because it's just five or 10 minutes, we all have five or 10 minutes. But we're starting to notice, too, how we feel better. And especially if you start with this love tour in that corner, you start how this makes now feel makes you feel better sitting there. Now, then you all of a sudden see something over there. Okay, now next project is going to be over there. So I spent 10 minutes over there. And it's kind of top of mind. You start changing your habits. You start not just, oh, I put it here for now, which is one of the worst sentences we can say out loud or think because that's how the clutter starts to pile up, right? Then you think, oh, no, I'm not putting it here because I'm putting it where it belongs. And it just starts a process that becomes so much more effortless to change your environment around to being supportive rather than sabotaging compared to that thing that you, that roller coaster thing that you um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. described before, which, which is what we're kind of told to. There is people out there that say, oh, yeah, just declutter once and be done forever. And there yeah, no. is no declutter once, be done forever. Decluttering um, is like dishes. It, yeah, or it, taking it, yeah. a bath or a shower, you know, yeah. it's like you can't just shower and then never have to shower in your life again. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Connie, I cannot believe how fast this time has gone. And and anybody who listens to this always hears me say this because, and I mean it every single time, these conversations are so good. And I have to say, I am feeling so inspired because I have, I have these two laundry baskets that are filled with papers and things that I need to sort through. And I'm feeling so motivated because something that you said that really jumped out at me that it feels really important is you were talking about how decluttering can be a way for us to process things. And I was thinking, I think decluttering is not only just a way to sort of process what's going on within, but it's also a way for us to sort what's mine, what's not mine. 
Like it can really help with empathic yeah. overwhelm. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking, oh, I've got these two baskets. Like instead of it just being like, oh my God, this is a chore. I'm actually kind of getting excited because I'm like, the reward is going to be more clarity. The reward is going to be more freedom. So mm-hmm. I'm feeling inspired to go and do some cleaning. But since awesome. we are really at the sort of the top of uh, of, of the episode, I always like to give you a chance to share the, you know, something that you haven't had a chance to say that just feels like if I don't say this, I'm going to regret it. So what, is there anything else that just feels like I absolutely need to say this? Um, I think I was able to say, I just want to stress again that I, I want the listener to come from a place of self-love rather than rigidity or I have to or society tells me or shame or judgment, but also for yourself. So what we never went into is like all the different kinds of clutter. So I always say like there's physical, digital, social, mental, emotional, spiritual clutter. There is all kinds of clutter. And one of the clutters that most people don't think about is our mind, how Mm -hmm. we think, how we beat ourselves up, how we think negatively and not supportive. So if I can say anything else is whatever you do, however you start with this process, make sure you're screening your thoughts and decluttering the 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 ones that and I was an expert in that and I'm still working on that um the negative thinking the thinking oh what is 10 minutes is not going to help anything that's why I said you have to celebrate yourself if you do something if you actually start doing something celebrate yourself think positive so that's um, what I wanted to say. And, and you have to shut me up because I could talk for hours. I could and talk like with I you say- for hours about this too. I mean, this is actually a, a topic that feels has always been just so incredibly important to me. And like I said, I'm amazed that I've never had this conversation on the show before, you know, and we're in our third, technically we're in our fourth season, but, you know, on, on this platform, it's the third season. And I'm so grateful that we've had this conversation. It's been so good. So before I let you go, there's two more things I want to ask you. Um, so I, at the end of every show, one of the things I love to do is I really think of podcasts as being outside of time. You know, they exist in the future and will be listened to for years and years and years to come. But I also believe the message or the signal can get sent back in time. And I like to think of the podcast as almost like this recording of sound is like a ribbon that folds over itself on in time. And that you and I are able to communicate not only with future Connie and Jennifer, but also that there is a way to reach back to young, little, highly sensitive Connie and give her a message that she really needs to hear. So if you were to imagine that we are literally time traveling back to that point where she is just like young and the young struggling mimosa, maybe, you know, first, who do you go back to? Like what, what period in time needs your message the most? And secondly, what do you need to say to her? Yeah, I, we, we, we are back to the start. I have to tell her she is not wrong. There is nothing wrong with her. She's actually, she has a gift that nobody else has, or or, no, that's not true, that other people don't have, or not so many people have, that nobody understands. This is how I probably would word it, and that it is a gift, and that she, if she needs to withdraw, she can withdraw, but that she should try to shine her light anyways, because it is a gift, and it is not, it is not something that is wrong, and I, I, had a long time to to get to this point to understand that this whole being sensitive is actually really a gift and not a curse and <laughs> you know not not something to be ashamed of yeah awesome awesome so final question how can people get in touch with you yeah so I have a website. The website is conigraph.com and which is C-O-N-N-Y, G-R-A-F.com. So I write Connie with a Y, not I-E. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a podcast. So since you're listening already to a podcast, you find me wherever you find podcasts. My podcast is called From Chaos to Peace with Connie. And 
in there you can hear me rant about more of this how decluttering is self-love i also talk there about how i have no rules i'm a little bit of a rebel a rebel but in the right way so i'm not having rules um, I have some principles that you can accept or not. <laughs> um, yeah, and I would love if people would just check it out and and for for their own sake, learn to pay attention how they feel and start changing and adjusting what they have control over rather than just always like, especially in these really trying times that we have lately or in the past few years. Stop looking at the outside, which we have no control over, and start creating supportive spaces where you have control over. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so guys, ConnieGraff.com and From Chaos to Peace is the name of the podcast. From Chaos to Peace with Connie, yes. From Chaos to Peace with Connie. So yeah. you guys check out Connie's website, check out her podcast, if you, especially if you're inspired and you're like, it would be really helpful to, to listen to this as I declutter. So Connie, thank you so much for being part of this, this interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for, for just for, for sharing all of these pearls of wisdom. I, I really do feel inspired. Uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> That's what I try to do with my podcast to inspire people to, um, because uh, and and I'm really grateful that you gave me um, a whole hour to <laughs> talk about what I'm passionate about. Because I know how it makes me feel, and I know that it will be valuable for other people if they start paying attention. Yeah. Yes. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Oh, thank you, thank you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.